And before we head into <clears throat> Advent season, which starts a week from today, I wanted to take this in between Thanksgiving and December sermon and talk about something that in one of my classes I'll, I'll teach on, but don't often get to preach about it, which is the idea of decisions. You know, it's hard at times to know where to step. And, and, I, and what I mean by that is, what college do you go to? Or do you go at all? That would be a question. What sports do you or don't you get involved in or other extracurricular activities? How might you want to spend your Friday evening when you have two birthday parties and an invite to dinner and a desire just to stay at home and do none of those things? Do you move closer to family or do you take a job that's farther away to run from your family? Do you marry this person or do you not? The notes say this person or that one, but I doubt many of you are sitting there trying to choose between two potential spouses. Do you take the new job or do you keep the old job? Or do you leave both opportunities and pursue another? We get paralyzed at times with how to make decisions. And in fact, our life, all of our lives, believer, unbeliever, if you're here today, your life has decisions before it, things you have to figure out. And a lot of the decisions that are before it, day in and day out, are not just like, well, God says go to LSU, which he would have said if it were in there, but it's not. And so, I can, I can say that after an LSU A&M game because LSU thoroughly won and, you know, but we lost last year and I didn't mention it. But at times it can feel paralyzing, like we really don't want to ruin it. We don't want to be wrong. Many of us have a fear of being wrong. Like what if I made the wrong decision and then just ruined my life? What if God wanted me to marry this person and I didn't? And then I married that person. Are like the next 50, 60, 70 years of my life a waste because I did the wrong thing up here? Like there's a wrong. We'll put wrong in air quotes there. So what I want to do today is just ask and answer this question, which is how, how do people who walk by the Spirit, how do believers who walk by the Spirit make decisions, especially in those areas of our lives, which our lives are littered with, that don't have a definite this way or that way. There are certainly some things that become abundantly clear right away. Should I or shouldn't I make disciples? Is it good to have an affair? Like, like there are things where you go, I think we can answer those questions very clearly with Scripture. But when you begin to look at Scripture and go, what is the schematic for deciding things and walking by faith? You'll realize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. So how do people who are walking by the Spirit decide things? What we're going to do is we're going to first look at, we're going to look at three things, but first we're going to look at the wisdom of the world. Secondly, we're going to look at the Scriptures and what Scriptures say about people and how they decided. And then we're just going to kind of build principles that I hope for anything that we do, we can live by. In any time and in any way. But the first thing we have to realize is that worldly wisdom when it comes to decision making just absolutely fails us. It fails us all the time. But there are ways that the world is going to tell you to take the next steps in life. 
and will realize very quickly that it fails. Here's one. We're going to, look at, we're going to give a line, and then we're going to look at how the scriptures would oppose that. Here's one that shows up in the world all the time, which is uh, follow your heart. You ever heard that one? You have to follow your heart in this thing. You've got you to really do what you feel is best at the moment, in the moment. Well, if anybody knows uh, the prophet Jeremiah and what he would say or what the Lord would say through him, you realize this very quickly. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Only the Lord can understand the heart. So the follow your heart advice that we might give or receive or hear, it's garbage advice for a believer, because we recognize that human hearts can't be trusted to make abiding and good decisions that are in line with the Lord. We need something more than just following our hearts. Uh, you need to kind of just decide for yourself. There would be one. It's kind of related to that, but decide for yourself. Right? Like get into a room, just handle it, make your pros and cons list, and then go. But then we have Proverbs, we'll hear two Proverbs on this throughout the morning, but one, Proverbs 11.4, where there is no guidance of people fails, but in abundance of counselors there is safety. So deciding in isolation, which is how we like to do a lot of things, like I come down out of a room or come out of a room or down from a mountain and go, here is what we must do, like that, that doesn't really fly because scripture would point me toward having other people involved in helping me, people who walk by the Spirit, helping me think about that. Another one that is all about self. We can be sure you do what makes you happy. Now, I'm a, I am a sports fan. You guys know that by now. But very often, like during free agent season, and this is coaching carousel season in college football, but like during free agent season, people are like, well, I had to make the best decision. I had to do what made me happy. I had to do this. You know, and you'll hear people go, well, whatever made him happy or whatever made her happy, we're just doing whatever. But then you look at Jesus, even his example. Jesus didn't live for his happiness. He lived to please his father and his father's will. John 5, 19. We spent many Sundays in the Gospel of John over the past couple of years. And you have this in John 5, 19, which we've used a lot. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You hear that? Even Jesus didn't live to please himself, to live as if he ought, but his earthly life in submission to the will of the Father was his paradigm. And maybe we think that we should break free of that or be different than that or anything, but no, <clears throat> we are servants of the Most High God. One thing that we can do, though, is we love to take a fleshly decision and spiritualize it. Here's what I mean. A fleshly decision and spiritualize it might be, and please, guys or girls in high school, if you've ever heard this, or maybe you're married now and you heard this back in the day, I'm sorry that you heard this back in the day. But if you've ever heard, I believe God wants me to break up with you. You ever heard that or something like it? God wants me to break up with you. God, God has told me the relationship must end. 
Like, you could have just said, you thought I was not attractive. But you had to bring God into it. So sometimes when we make decisions based on ourselves, what we will actually do is we will sprinkle God talk into it to make it feel better, make it feel more palatable, because we all recognize when God says something, we can't not do it. And so we'll, we'll, just, we'll, we'll sprinkle that in there, but really what we're doing, if we're not careful, if there's no definitive language God uses in Scripture for that thing, what we're doing is we're really just taking I and putting God there. I would like this to go a different way. But I'm going to say God would like this to go a different way because that sounds better than just saying I would. And so all of these ways the world makes decisions challenges us and reminds us to make decisions. It isn't how God's people decide. But here's the other problem that we always have when we decide. It's like, and again, it's in these, I'll say gray. It's not gray as in right or wrong, but gray as in the scripture doesn't speak to it. We go, what? okay, let's go to the Word and let's, let's figure out what happens then. I'm just going to give you a list of examples in Scripture of people who made decisions in ways I doubt you even make decisions. But what we'll see here is that Scripture produces no one way to decide anything, to live your life. I'll give you an example of Scripture providing no one way to decide anything. Every seminary student, when I was there uh, at Dallas, was required to do an internship. Internship had to be 400 hours of work in whatever field you were supposed to be a part of. It could have lasted for a semester or it could have lasted for a full year, but you had to do 400 hours, if I did my math right, of work in something, you know, in something you were interested in or something close to it. Every, you know, many jobs have something similar to that. So you had to do the internship. And I started an internship and got fired from it. That's correct. I got fired from my first church job. So I, uh, yeah, that's another story and another wound for another time. Lost my job. My first church job as a worship leader, of all things. <clears throat> so I needed another one. And the decision I, that was before me was, do I go back to my church in Baton Rouge that I had gotten married and left and started seminary, so we moved from Baton Rouge to Dallas, we were doing that. So do I do that, <clears throat> or, but that would require me to be gone all summer because Courtney was working, and so we would be separated for the bulk of the summer. Or do I do something else that keeps me back, keeps me home? And I really didn't know which way to go. I'll get back to the decision that I made a little later. But that's, that's what I mean. Is like, what does Scripture say about that? Do you go to Baton Rouge to do your internship, or do you find another internship to pursue that keeps you in Dallas so you can be around your wife more? Which one? I bet if I pulled the room, I would get different answers from you folks. So let's just go through a few things and a few examples in Scripture and just see the way people came about in their decision-making. I'm going to list them, and I'll read some of the passages that we have. But here's one. Gideon asks for a fleece. Just one click more, Stephen, you'll see it. Yeah, Gideon's fleece is one example. Remember Gideon's fleece? Okay, so if you're with us in the book of Judges over the summer, Gideon is afraid of the 
the enemy, he is hiding. The Lord tells him he's valiant. The Lord tells him that everything's going to be okay, that there's going to be a big battle fought, and that uh, Gideon and his troops will prove victorious. They will demonstrate themselves as victorious because the battle is the Lord's. And Gideon says in Judges chapter 6, God, if you will save Israel by my hand, I'm laying a fleece of wool down on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so. He rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you're about to go into anything that you need to go before the Lord with, use Judges chapter 6 as your strategy, the, the Gideon fleece strategy, where you go, well, I will put this fleece out, and if the weather patterns change, and then the next day it flips, we'll, we'll know, God, that you're... You're good. Now, we might actually do something similar, which is like, you know, God, if, if the weather's great tomorrow, then I'll know that you want me to go outside. We'll do some kind of weird thing like that. But when it comes to a demonstration of God's faithful character, and if he'll do the things he says he's going to do, I doubt many people in this room have that level of choice and decision making. I doubt anybody in this room, now, again, don't, don't, don't raise your hand. Are big lot casters? Anybody here just cast lots when you decide, like, okay, like that's how the disciples picked who replaced Judas by casting lots. And so I don't I, I doubt in here we are lot casters. I doubt in here we are Gideon's fleece people. There's another one. Remember David and Nathan? Now you probably remember King David, and then Nathan was his prophet. <clears throat> well, David wanted to build the temple for God. You remember that? And so David realized that God had never really had a temple for himself, and all the other surrounding nations had temples for their God, and David wanted to do it. And so he asked Nathan, should I be able to build a temple? Right? He wants to decide something, which is a build a temple, don't build a temple. And so he asked Nathan, his kind of prophet, his seer in a sense, like, like should I do this? And Nathan's like, yeah, bro, it's going to be great. Build it. Then the Lord spoke to Nathan Sounds like Nathan was a bit presumptuous in his speech to David. Just said, yeah, temples are great, go for it. Because the Lord then spoke to Nathan and said, eh, no temple building by David. It's going to be built by his son. God says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving into a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I move, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You can always hear the Lord be like, do you think I'm that needy that I need a temple to do this thing? I've never asked, never needed it. We have been, we have been moving, and I have been leading my people the entire time. 
So the Lord says to David, I took you from my pasture, from my following sheep, uh, from following the, following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly said. From that time I appointed judges over my people I pointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish this throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is actually Davidic covenant language. Now here's what's interesting. David goes, I want to build God a house. Nathan says, go for it. Then God speaks to Nathan, says, nope, can't do it. Go talk to, to David one more time. And it's interesting that God even says that. He one-ups it. He goes, you think you're going to build me a house? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build you a house. And that house is his lineage, his line, the Davidic lineage, which goes all the way through to Jesus. I will build you a house. And my loving kindness will not depart from my servant. I doubt many of you make decisions like, David and Nathan. I doubt many of you, not any of you, have a prophet you have kind of in your corner to go, hey, should we do this or that? And get the answer. So I doubt your fleece users. I doubt your prophet users. But let's go into the New Testament. The Jerusalem Council, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Acts chapter 15, should circumcision be required for salvation? At that point in time in the history of the church, by Acts chapter 15, it had not been decided if circumcision should be needed for salvation. And by not be decided, what I mean is, <clears throat> Paul thought it was a done deal, salvation by grace through faith. But there were some, <clears throat> specifically with a Jewish background, from believing Pharisees who thought, no, it must be this way. So this became a gospel issue, a salvation issue. Must you have this in order to be saved? And so they get together in Acts chapter 15 and have a church meeting. The Jerusalem Council, they all get together. All the leadership from all different backgrounds get together. Churches are represented. And the question is, do you or don't you circumcise the men for salvation? Well, that would be a Jesus plus, right? You trust in Jesus and you do a work. Anybody who has read the letter to the Galatians, anybody who has just read the through line of the New Testament recognizes salvation is by grace through faith always. It is not by works. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. And so when you see Acts chapter 15, they land in the right spot, which is absolutely not. But the decision actually comes about by tons of deliberation and arguments and discussion about how God has moved and what they have seen. And then they write a letter, and in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, they say this, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit 
and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then they list out the requirements. Deciding through deliberation about gospel issues, for they had clear understanding of the cross of Christ and the message of salvation and what it would mean. That one was a clearer, there is a right and there is a wrong answer to this one. And people needed to be corrected. But what about what we see with James? What we read right before at the beginning. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is rebuking the traveling church member. And by traveling church member, I just mean that they had a job that moved them around. They had plans that would require travel and conducting business, James 4, 13, 14, and 15. And so the rebuke that he has there, which we read, was, for those who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, make money, for those of you who just have that level of confidence about what you're going to do, you're, rec- you're not recognizing how frail your life is or how sovereign God is. You are presuming upon God. And so that's what he says in verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will be. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I love that one because I used to, I've said this before, years back when we preached James, I used to hear the people that would say, if God wills, and think that that was like a cop-out line. It was just something that you used to kind of put a stamp over whatever you wanted to do. And the longer I've lived, the more I've realized that's really all I have. Like, I'm going to get up tomorrow if the Lord wills. And I'm going to drive down the interstate and make it to my destination in Houston traffic if the Lord wills wills, especially if it rains. Everything is dependent upon the sovereign and good hand of God. Everything that we do. And to begin to presume upon God with my own plans and say, this is without a doubt what will happen is rebukable because it doesn't carry the submission to God's sovereignty and God's power. Notice James doesn't rebuke them in 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 4. He doesn't rebuke them for just having a plan. Gosh, no. Having an idea, but the rebuke is for the lack of submission of that plan to God's care, to God's sovereignty, and to God's control. Now, here's something that if you've been a part of our church over the past year, really year plus, You've been in our conversations about prayer. Maybe you've read Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. Maybe you've had different, different interactions. Maybe you've joined us on Wednesday mornings for prayer. Is that as we're trying as a church and as individuals to bring more and more and more things into our conversations with God. Not just, Lord, should we replant our church or not. That's a pretty big one. But like, should... Should we spend this amount of time with this family? Or should we do this? Or what should we do regarding this job situation? Or how should I spend 
tomorrow. We want to start bringing all of these things before the Lord. And Paul Miller, you might, might have heard the story in his book of Praying Life, talks about vacation homes. Now, you might go, well, what kind of church was it, all the members praying about vacation homes? It's not this one. <clears throat> but he talks about vacation homes. And the language that he uses, you might have heard this or heard me say it before, when he talks about this very thing is, if you don't pray about whether or not the Lord would actually have this be something that you should do, I bet what you're going to do is find a realtor, get the financing, and get the home. Rather than bring it into the realm of God's sovereign control and go, God, should we? And bring it into your church family and go, God, should we? Because we feel like that thing is in our control. It's our money, it's our time, it's our financing, it's it's our ability. No, it's always still the Lord's. And so it's not to not do something like like the, the decision itself is evil, but when we begin to presume upon what we have or presume upon the Lord or just assume it'll all be good without bringing anything that we do, especially in those margin things that we feel like are under our control, what we begin to do is boast about us and not surrender our plans to a sovereign God. Now, for those of you in the room um, who own businesses or who have been effective in your jobs for some time now, praise God for that. Praise God for that. But I would say that if we have not been diligent to put our decisions before God in prayer, then perhaps we are presuming upon the Lord or having too much confidence in ourselves. And that's not to say that you would have made a different decision, but if you are pushing in a direction that must, come, must go without going, Lord, is this what you need? Is this the best? <clears throat> and he may not give you the answer. We'll get to the principles here at the end. Remember, three things. Worldly wisdom, it fails us. What does Scripture say? But what James suggests is submit it to God. If it's the Lord's will, we'll do it. We'll continue in this direction. But we will let God correct it. Trusting in God's plan without presuming. Having a plan, but releasing the plan. Then we have the Apostle Paul. And Paul had a different kind of approach. His approach was very often relating to missions. What is the most effective thing for gospel proclamation? If you've heard me talk about the Jerusalem Council before, then you know what happens in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. Chapter 16 in the book of Acts, Paul then leaves. They begin to de- go and just de- like deliver the news that you don't have to be circumcised. And all the Gentiles are like, whoo, very glad about that. They're excited. Then he goes to a church and he meets a man named Timothy. If you remember the letters of 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, then you realize that he became an important man for Paul in his future ministry. On the second missionary journey in the book of Acts, Paul finds Timothy. And he was well regarded by the churches there. And the thing that he does after deciding to take Timothy with him is circumcise him. 
Now, if you are getting confused between the decision in Acts chapter 15 and the decision of Paul in Acts chapter 16 to go, why would it be not required here, but then the first thing Paul does when he meets a new guy who isn't circumcised is circumcise him, that would be a reasonable question to ask. But the reason that he did it, that we have in Acts chapter 16 that Luke writes for us, is because of the Jewish people who were there. Because Paul knew that he would be doing ministry amongst Jewish people, and he did not want Timothy's Gentile family history on one half, one side, to be a hindrance to gospel proclamation. It was not at that point in time about salvation. It was about missions effectiveness. And so in that regard, it became a much easier decision. Paul would talk about how he would decide in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Very often, your all things are lawful is, is quoted in 1 Corinthians 10. What he's likely doing is taking an argument that the Corinthians were giving to him, and he's responding to it. So yes, you tell me all things are lawful, and he responds with, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That would be, is the food sacrificed to idols? Is it not? Because you recognize the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then he talks about conscience. Don't do what would harm another person. Whatever you do, you might know this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to, listen to this, please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul's, his filter was quite different. There was no fleece. There was, does this help me clearly proclaim Christ? And if it helps me more clearly proclaim Christ, if it helps me gain an audience with people who do not know Christ, then I will do it so long as it doesn't bring an offense. Because for him, the only offense that mattered was the offense of the cross. He wanted to not be, because the cross itself is offensive. The message of you're sinful and in need of a savior is always an offensive message. He wanted that to be the only thing that offended. And so his filter for what he did or how he did it would be different. This is why sometimes Paul would be a tent maker and earn his money from the work that he did so that he would not be a burden to the churches that he served, would not presume upon them. But he also would have no problem fundraising from them. Because each church and each mission stop had its own needs and its own situations, and he wanted to be sensitive to those. So my internship. Remember, I had to decide, where am I going? Am I going to go to Louisiana? It was only like an eight-hour drive, seven-hour drive away. 
So it wasn't that big of a deal. Am I going to go do this or am I going to stay? And you're a newlywed, right? I've been married, what, three years at that time? And so this was like the biggest decision of my life because the marriage one had already been decided. So do I leave for 10 weeks or do I not? What do I do here? And I was talking to a professor, and he said this to me. He said, well, Hans, what, as far as you can tell, what opportunity gives you the best, the best way to glorify God, to, to help in disciple-making, to help make him known? Which opportunity makes it best? And the moment he said that, I was like, going to Baton Rouge. And he's like, well, then the decision's made. You don't, have to, you don't have to find some other reason or some other. I know you feel like it's going to be weird being gone, but the decision's made. Because of what is before you, you weigh it and you go, this one's actually going to be more effective for disciple making than that one. And, I went, and so, so it was done. Now, could there have been 30 other decisions I didn't know about? Sure, but the ones that were before me were before me. Which one is going to be the most effective for disciple making? And the moment he said that, it made everything clearer. Because I realized that of what was before me, if I'm a disciple, my goal is disciple making and effectiveness there, it's done. And sometimes we need that level of clarity in order to help us. So, principles. The main one is this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll bullet it out. We trust in God's resources to decide. Trust in God's resources to decide. Now, what do I mean by all of that? Well, let's just go through some and realize what God has given to us. What, what do we actually have as New Testament Christians? What do we have? The first, which is kind of the preface and, and ties it all together, is trust in God's spirit. This isn't all of these. Trust in God's spirit. You'll see the Holy Spirit and his presence in everything that we do here. But when it comes to salvation even, we trust. And then we have Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 2.10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So those who have the Holy Spirit residing within them, they have, they have access to God that others don't have. The Spirit searches things out. He, the Spirit, also inspired the scriptures that we read. And if you're doing our reading plan, that you read daily and that you memorize and that we preach and that we sing. I would say this, you trust in God's Spirit and you trust in God's Word. Where God speaks, you speak. This is advice I got early on in seminary. Where the Bible speaks, I speak. Where the Bible's silent, I'm silent. But where God speaks and it's clear the decision's made. That's not the problem that we usually have. Now, sometimes it is. But that's not the problem that we usually have. So, trust in God's word. Where God speaks, it's clear. The more saturated your mind and heart are with the scriptures, the better it goes for us. 
Because we can discuss and we can pray and we can think and we can engage and we can help to filter our minds and our hearts better than if we're just guessing. It's like throwing darts against the board. It's going, I hope this one works. Hope this one hits. Hope this one's right. There are times where we just go to the Word and go, what does it say? It no longer becomes unclear. It becomes clear. Look at Psalm 119, verses 104 and 105. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. But you can't know what is false unless you know what is true. Through your precepts, I gain understanding. Your word, we might know the song, thy word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Now, that, I mean, just imagine... Carrying a lantern or a flashlight, because we don't really use lanterns that often, and you're walking in this world, you need something to help illuminate what is around you. God's Word is that, that thing that helps to illuminate our minds and our hearts to what God would have. This one should be so easy for us, and yet it's not. Does the Bible tell you who you should marry? It gives you two categories if you're a believer. Believers and unbelievers. And if you are interested in marrying an unbeliever, the scriptures say, don't do it. If you are marrying a believer, the scriptures say, go for it. But there's not a name there. There's not a person. It's not like this like, well, should I marry... You know, her or her, him or him. Like, like that's, that's, not, that's not the part of it. So the big bucket is, scriptures say, men, don't marry an unbelieving woman. Women, don't marry an unbelieving man, as attractive as they might be. Men, marry an unbelieving, or a believing woman. And women, marry a believing man. Because that, as unattractive as they might be, just kidding, um, Because in that, you are equally yoked, as Scripture would say. You should long for the same things, desire the same things. But those are your buckets. Those are your buckets. You might live your life, especially if if you're guilty conscience, you might live your life terrified that you married the wrong person and wonder if God is going to use you anymore. Because you made some bad decision 25 years ago. Believers, who's the one God has for you? It's the one you're married to. That's it. The one you're married to. Now with that, God's spirit and God's word, there is this aspect that we need to recognize in God's word. I'll put it this way. Trust the God of the word, which is his character, his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, his strength, his might, his plan, is that he is, he is the one to be trusted. And so even when you're unsure, you know what you can do? You can trust him. You can trust him to direct your steps in the right way. You could trust him to course correct. Like That's not the concern. Blaine, we were talking recently about that book, Just Do Something, right? Like, like, like it's, sometimes we just get paralyzed, going, well, should I, should I, should I, should I, should I? It's like, no, just, just move and let God redirect because he will. 
He redirected David. Nathan goes, go for it. Then Nathan goes, my bad, don't go for it. God said, not a good idea. Like, that's okay. It can sometimes, I, and believers, are, are, we can be worse at it. Because for us, it feels like the stakes are always so high. It's like, well, should we sell our house and buy a new one? Bring it before people. Look at God's word. There are principles about indebtedness, maybe distance from church family, things that might make it harder. But, like, bring it before people. Pray, pray that God would be clear in it. Keep moving and let him redirect. And don't be mad if it goes sideways. Like, don't force it to the end. Just trust him. Because there's no better person to trust. No one better to trust. So his spirit, which resides in every believer, and his word, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which illuminates our minds and our hearts and gives us truth to trust the scriptures. Here would be the fourth. Trust in God's people who walk by God's spirit. So few of us bring our decisions before our community groups or our discipleship groups or just our faith family. We don't do it until after or once it's like kind of too late. And this is, I want to give this challenge to all of us, myself included. Bring more of your daily decisions before your church family in some way. Let them speak into it. Let them help you. Let them encourage you. Let them speak wisdom. Use what God has taught them and how God has challenged them and how God has corrected them. And mistakes that they have made, use those to help you. There have been times, and we'll use marriage as an example because most of us, most of us will be married, where people's family or friends or believers will go, I don't know if you want to marry that person. I don't know if that's the best decision. But you let your heart win, and then it is not easy. It gets really hard. And you go, well, you're in it now. Now it's God's person for you, and you're going to have to work it, and we're here to work it with you. But the desire to not be single supersedes the desire to seek the counsel of brothers and sisters. And that's one of those times where you can realize the heart is screaming louder than potentially God's spirit and the counselors that you might have. You can see it again in Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Now, we're not all going to war. I get it. But I can tell you that my best decisions have included other people. And my worst ones have basically just included me. It's why I generally make it a rule to not decide anything without having other people give me their advice. I just need to hear it. What do you think about this? Should I do this? Should I do this? Or should I do that? I remember years back emailing all the elders and just going, you, if you know my house travails, then you know this issue. But I was like, I'm, my house is making me paranoid. Do I sell it? And I just I kicked it to the elders. I said, do I sell it? Do I, what do I do here? You know, like, like I, don't, I don't know what I would do. I don't know where I'd move. I don't know, I don't know anything about that. And I got crazily mixed responses 
you know, one response was like, man, I mean, it kind of eases your fear of your house, sure, but you know the problems that are with it. You won't know the problems that are in a new house. Like, I was like, you're not helping me, guys. I want a definitive yes or no from my elders on this thing, and you're not giving it to me. But that's because there's not a clear yes or no on it. So you, you seek and you ask, and at times it does become clear. I've told this story too many times, but I'm going to tell it again. I remember hating one of my old cars and just going, I'm done with it. I have a loan. It's time. And my friend Craig goes, that sounds like a bad idea. Why don't you just take one month's payment on, on what you would pay on a new car loan and try to fix the thing that you have rather than take out a 60-month loan for that amount? Are you a fool? And I was like, golly, that's really good advice, and I'm kind of angry that I brought it up because my heart was set on something, but you're right. You're right. And this year, we had to replace our, our very old minivan. It was very old, and it was dying. It died on me on Easter. It, like, we couldn't drive it anywhere. Uh, many, I'd get SOS calls on the way to school just going, the car died again. I'm like, let me come get you guys. So it was, it was kind of getting to that spot in life. The kids thought it was cool because it was cool when the car just stopped working. They thought it was neat. Just driving down the road, it no longer accelerated. Not as cool if you're, you know, trying to be the provider in your family and your wife's driving around in a car that won't go. So we had to do something, and I kept going, hey, you got to get super low monthly payment. I love to pay cash, but cars are stupidly expensive. So I was talking to Patrick about it in the back of the room. Patrick's like my financial advisor. I said, what should I do here? And he goes, I, he goes this is how I would try and pay that thing down faster. This is what I would suggest that you do. I said, that's pretty good. And then I asked John Whitebrook. I said, John, Patrick said, no, Patrick's like 40 years younger than John, so I can't trust Patrick about everything. But I said, Patrick said I should do this. What do you think? And John goes, I, that sounds like good advice. I was like, all right, done. Right? Sometimes it just takes other brothers coming into your life or sisters coming into your life to go, hey, do this instead. This is a better thing. And they save you from headaches, from headaches. And so it's not uncommon if you go through my text history with Patrick for me to kind of keep giving him my loan balance because we're getting really close to having it like paid off in 10 months. Like, I was like, let's just get this thing done. Um, so like that's just in my history because he gave me some advice on how to get it done more quickly. And it was good advice. But I would not have come up with it myself. We need each other. We need the gifts and we need the experience and we need the help of other brothers and sisters. I honestly, I mean, we say this a lot. I don't know how people who don't exist in community with other believers survives. I don't think they do it as well as they think. Because we need each other. Finally, trust in God through prayer. Trust in God through prayer. Because we have to keep bringing our hearts before him. And then when it's time to decide, decide. And choose joyfully. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, you agonize and agonize and agonize, and then, boop, go. So we're talking about, you know, affirming or not affirming. It is a, a, an opportunity to join another church. 
and replant together to be about 300 and to like, maybe expand our ministry offerings, things like that. Like that's what we're, that's a decision that's before us. I do not believe God's going to be mad at us with a yes or a no because we're his people. We belong to him connected by the Lord Jesus. We're his people. What we're trying to do is go, would this be more effective for disciple making? Would this be a better opportunity for us to engage, to care? Would this, would this, would this accomplish more uh, as far as we can tell? And we're making next Sunday our final affirmation. You can still affirm this Sunday or this week, but like next Sunday, the final time, we'll take affirmations. And what I just want to say is don't panic. Don't panic one way or the other because both outcomes are going to be hard. And that's okay. And both outcomes will be good. Because we're his church and we have his word and we're united by his spirit. And so like, it just, I think sometimes like, well, golly, what if? Like, don't be on the wrong side of history. When we're with the Lord, there is no wrong side of history. We're his. We belong to him. We're saved by him. We're his. There is nothing to fear. And so we walk, and we trust, and we pray, and then when we decide, we decide, and we move. In our family, we do this. We talk about things. My kids are awesome because they're super, in this realm, super obedient, and they'll go, we'll give you our advice, but we know it's not our decision. They're very honoring to mom and dad, which I appreciate. We know, we'll give you what we think, but we know it's not our decision to make, but this is what we decide. Great. And then we move. And there are times I've made decisions. My poor oldest son has to deal with this. We made a decision for an orthodontic appliance. Thought it was going to be the right one. It was absolutely the wrong one. Maybe I should have asked more advice from you guys about it. Absolutely the wrong one. And, like, I've scarred him for life. Like, we're going to be, in 30 years, he's going to be telling the story when dad got the tongue crib put in my mouth, and I hated it, and he was terrible, and I can't believe that I let him stay my dad. Like, like I go, bro, I, every time he brings up, I go, it was the wrong decision. We fixed it. We addressed it. I'm really sorry. You know, and I hate that you're on the receiving end of a bad decision. But we'll go from there. So what I want to say is, as we consider what God has put before us in any part of life, trust him over yourself. Trust his people together walking by his spirit over yourself. Trust his word over yourself. Trust his spirit over yourself. Trust him. Because it's the better place to be. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be together. We're grateful to gather.